yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Have no fear for atomic energy, 'cause none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. Won't you help me sing? Come on, let's sing together, bro. These songs of freedom. Everybody's all I ever had. What? Redemption songs. All I ever had. Redemption songs. Welcome, everyone. Thank you once again for tuning in to Go Green Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Hemp Tech Malaysia, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of hemp in Malaysia with experts, researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates of the hemp industry. You're here with me, your host, Anne, and co-host, Eric. And joining us today, we have our well-esteemed guest, Dania Putri from Percepsi, who has also worked with Lingkaran Gaja Nusantara, which is a cannabis advocate society in Indonesia. Welcome, Dania. Hi, everyone. So the topic for today is regional perspective, decolonizing drug policy, where we will be talking with Dania about her work on drug policy reform around the globe to gain more insight about her understanding of the movement of cannabis rescheduling around the globe. Dania has been working with policy reform for over seven years now and has advocated for safer regulation around drug regulation and specifically the cannabis industry globally. This is actually her second time with us and the last time she was with us was on the previous Canaham Summit which was hosted by Mira in 2019. Thank you for joining us once again, Dania. So before we start off, could you perhaps give us a short introduction about yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up stepping into drug policy reform? Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very happy to yeah to meet you guys again and talk with you again. So a short introduction. Uh, professionally speaking, I do specialize in drug policy and to be more specific, cannabis policies around the world. And you know, I, I work as a freelance consultant mainly with different organizations, but also with you know, colleagues working on drug policy in my home country in Indonesia. Yeah, I call my consultancy Percepsi, and that's basically, you know, how I work with different organizations. I mainly, you know, write or I do research or I do, um, you know, communications work, mainly on drug policy and related social issues. So we understand you have a lot of background, especially with writing and research. But in the past few years, like you mentioned, you worked a lot with drug policy, cannabis policy from around the world. Have you always been passionate about drug policy or did you develop a passion along with your work with writing? That's a very good question, actually, because I must say I started learning about drug policy when I was in university. So when I was, you know, 18 or so. And before that, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd never really 
taken any drugs or I had never um, expressed any interest in psychoactive substances or any related policies. So I, you know, when I was in university, I I learned about, you know, international relations and international policymaking, including the processes in which uh, drug prohibition uh, was globalized. And it was not necessarily the drugs themselves or cannabis itself that attracted my interest, but it was more about the manipulative process in which um, harmful policies were created and were, you know, expanded and globalized. So, yes, you know, I was already writing back then, but, you know, when I was in university, I, I started to become very interested in, in drug policy and in cannabis prohibition uh, specifically. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it developed, I think. And some people kind of say that when they hear my story, they say like, oh, so cannabis is in a way kind of like a gateway drug to drug policy for you. So it's not that simple, of course, but I must say by learning about the development of global cannabis prohibition, I started learning about so many other things, not only related to drugs, drug policy, but also about the world in general. That's interesting. And we're excited that, you know, we have you on our show to actually talk to us about this and about your passion. Um, so your work with drug policy reform commonly debates the need for reform of regulations instead of applying punitive and eradication approach, which has proven to be ineffective um, in the war on drugs over the years. And drug policies are different around the globe and very specific for each country, depending on the source of problem. Um, such as Portugal have decriminalized drug usage and have seen significant decrease in drug abuse problems, while countries like U.S., Canada, Uruguay have given up the war on cannabis, instead stepped ahead regulating these industries to realize its economic potential. When you talk about decolonization, what does it relate to in perspective of the war on drugs and can you probably elaborate a little more on the efforts of decolonization as a whole to give us a better understanding? Yes, I love this question. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, yeah, raising this theme, actually. I have such mixed feelings with the term, with the concept and the practice and the debates around decolonization, especially when it comes to drug policy and the war on drugs. So maybe many friends and colleagues in Malaysia and the whole Southeast Asia, the whole world almost, would be familiar with, you know, to some extent the term decolonization because it relates to colonization, which, um, you know, most of the world had experienced. And of course, in short, the decolonization refers to the process, the very long and lengthy and difficult, complicated process of delinking ourselves as formerly colonized pe peoples uh, delinking ourselves from our colonial powers, right, and our colonial past, and uh, the various colonial legacies that uh, came with it. In the context of the war on drugs, the debate around decolonization or decoloniality, to be more precise, is uh, a process that is mainly discussed in the context of undoing racism and undoing the war on drugs and undoing, you know, this criminalization of mainly black and brown bodies. Uh, and this is a very, very important, huge and difficult task, of course. And that's a very urgent thing that we need to do right now. And, and I think it is already happening. You know, we see a lot of like reforms around the world and African and Asian countries and Latin American countries waking up and realizing that these drug laws that are punitive are not compatible, are colonially rooted. They were implemented during colonial times, mainly by colonial powers. However, 
nowadays I'm very much more interested in what came before drug prohibition, you know, which was commodification and the globalization of psychoactive drugs. We went from one, you know, cultivating and growing certain psychoactive plants like cannabis or opium or coca to meet our, you know, our personal or community needs, right? But then as the European colonial and imperial project developed, colonial powers really started to use and convert drugs from something that we use into something that we trade and something that we commodify even more and, you know, even further and further. And then, you know, this really resulted in significant change in our relationship with drugs, I think, with plants and with food. And because most of these drugs were, you know, were originally just, you know, plants, right? So I think that's something that I really want to do more research on and is a very fascinating and huge subject that is rarely explored in the context of decolonization and drug policy, I think. And we need to seriously consider this when we talk about ending the war on drugs, you know, because decolonization and decoloniality, I think, is a very huge task. And we need to imagine something very big and very radical. And we need to keep asking ourselves, like, okay, is it a matter of just ending drug prohibition? Or do we need to think further? Do we need to reimagine our relationships with drugs, which are not only lucrative commodities, you know, they're sources of food, sources of medicine, sources of our, you know, spirituality. So I think that's what I've been very interested in. That's actually very interesting when you you link the whole entire picture as to how the colonizers actually sort of implemented the laws on places that used to practice things very differently. And I'm sure in all these native countries, the way they used to practice these drugs was very different as compared to the kind of drug abuse that we are seeing nowadays, which is very chemical-based, a lot of drug overdoses are mainly based on, you know, opioid-based substances. And it started because of, they say, you know, the understanding that drugs can be used if you have certain pain issues. But the way it was practiced by the traditional communities are very different. But due to the colonizers, they completely cannot practice it at this point of time. So are the laws where cannabis and hemp are currently cultivated, like you mentioned, in some of these countries, uh, such as perhaps Colombia, India, and Indonesia, are they backdated or do they need to be reshaped in some way? Yeah, definitely. We talk about the history of um, drug laws in Indonesia, for example. You know, I think earlier laws restricting drugs had much to do with cannabis and opium. So, for example, in Indonesia, in Aceh, I believe the first legislations to control or to restrict cannabis cultivation and use were implemented in the 1920s by, of course, by the Dutch colonial government. So, yeah, it was very outdated. And these laws, when they were first created and implemented, they were not as harsh as they are today, of course. And they were more about like, okay, first we should ask the, the village leader to like report to us like how many you know acres of cannabis there are in this area and that area and and then gradually as the years went by like you know more restriction was put in place and then also with those new regulations new forms of stigma new forms of discrimination also came along you know because at the time cannabis and, and opium were quite like commonly used by locals and 
people start seeing these kind of patterns in which certain fears and concerns that originated back in either Europe or in you know North America were translated into different forms of stigma and racism towards the native populations, you know, who were using some of these drugs. So, of course, these laws are very outdated. And I think it's very useful to, you know, keep reminding ourselves about the history of it. Like, you know, that's not always been like this. What has actually been the impact of these laws when we look on the ground in these countries? When these laws were enforced, I'm sure a lot of these communities back then used to find their source of income from farming these products. And they basically look at it as a commodity back then before all these, you know, colonial laws were applied onto their countries, right? So what have actually been the implications of these laws onto the communities and are the governments there actually taking efforts to help them in any way? Yeah, that's a very important but very big question as well, Eric. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I think I could divide, you know, the answers into two or three points. And I think the first point, quite an important point to address is it relates to my previous point about the process of commodification. Like, for example, in India, and I only started learning this recently, actually, so I don't know all the details, but what I know is that, so opium is, of course, you know, quite a common, it has long, you know, been used in the subcontinent. And even until today, in some areas, in some states of India, including places like Arunachal Pradesh, actually the opium market, the illegal opium market, is still relatively domestic, you know. So a lot of farmers, they grow opium and they sell directly, actually, to the consumers. And so funny thing is that this image, it sort of contradicts with this fear mongering, you know, image that drug prohibitionists use when they talk about, you know, people who grow drug plants and and the stigma surrounding like, okay, if you grow opium, that means you, you know, you're you manufacture heroin and that means, you know, you you traffic drugs and then you kill people. So I think that, you know, one big impact is that these laws, these policies, they create such a distorted view of people, you know, regardless of what they do within the drug markets. Like maybe they use drugs, maybe they use and cultivate drugs to so that they can use their own supply. And maybe they're poor farmers who don't have any other sources of income. Or maybe they're simply, you know, farmers who just grow opium along with other food crops to suit their, you know, community and family needs. And of course, like, the second point would be the obvious answer, I would say, which is this creation of the black market, right? The expansion of the black market and then all the ills that come with it. And when I say the black market, it's not fully black, you know, ironically, it's not fully, it's not a black and white thing, because when we talk about the illegal market, you, of course, have, you know, the obvious overlap between illegal and legal enterprises, and which creates another whole, another set of issues, right? You have like corrupt officials, you have certain wealthy drug traffickers who exploit farmers. And these are very, very complicated, you know, interdependent issues that I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to go into detail now because, yeah, it requires, I think, at least three hours of an episode, I would say. But I think to sum it up, I would say the impact is that these laws always, at the end of the day, disproportionately harm those who are poor, those who are living in 
remote areas, those who are marginalized, and at the same time, these laws just enrich or give more power to people who are already exploiting others. Yeah, actually we can see that this, when you don't legalize something, you kind of drive it to a different market and that is how this whole entire black market is thriving and they are actually taking opportunity of these people who have no choice but to actually continue farming in order to make a living, right? They are actually poor farmers and that's all they can do to make a living. But how is it that these farmers, even though they're under, you know, nations that have a democratic system perhaps and all that, how is it that these countries still lack the enforcement that exists in other countries, you know, the colonizers perhaps? Why is it that these countries still don't enforce the, the enforcement officers still see the potential in taking bribes. Um, is this the previous effects of colonization on these countries or is it because there is no political stability on the countries? What I mean by the previous effects of colonization, is it because that when the laws were enforced on these countries, they were enforced in such a way that there was no proper plan and there was no proper basis and that's why the officials now are just forced to take a bribe or is it because these countries are not actually developing their research etc into the drug regulation firstly i would say that even in so-called developed countries the wealthy countries like the united states when they criminalized alcohol in the 1920s actually these cases of corruption bribery extortion, smuggling, trafficking, they were very, very common. If I can put it more simply, when you prohibit something that, you know, that people like to consume or that people need, then of course these forms of corruption and bribery and, you know, smuggling and trafficking, you know, would occur regardless of how they look. Perhaps in European countries right now, these cases of bribery and trafficking or corruption, the nature of these cases is very different than what we see in Asian countries or African countries, but they do happen. So I think referring back to the example from the United States during alcohol prohibition, I think it's very, you know, it's always very helpful to sort of see this similar patterns. Like these cases, they happen everywhere in perhaps in different places, different time and in different contexts. So I think you did answer it when asking that question. Like at these laws, these prohibition laws, yeah, they were not, all of them were not well researched, you know, especially the ones that are very punitive in nature, especially the ones that are based on zero tolerance policies. And the interesting thing is that, yeah, in some European countries, and you mentioned Portugal in the beginning, the level of pragmatism and the level of, you know, research later on did become you know, an increasingly important part of their newer drug laws. And with those adjustments, of course, you know, the level of harms and including cases of like bribery or extortion and things like that, they also gradually went away. So I think there's a lot in there, but I'm glad you brought that up. It's an important one. Why I'm asking this question actually is just kind to understand what is the context of the problem for different countries? Because like you mentioned in India, uh, perhaps it still happens illegally, right? And 
if we look at China on the other hand, why we look at China is because they have been a country that has been cultivating hemp for quite some time now and they have sort of put regulations around it, they have stated the terms and conditions around it and they have actually been the leaders in the hemp industry up till this point. So that's why I asked this question whether proper regulation around the cultivation and distribution of cannabis globally would actually save the farmers that are exploited currently, you know, would it actually kind of stop the black market? There's no easy way to stop the black market because even in, and I'm sorry, I'm not like giving like concrete solutions here because, because, you know, that's the reality, right? It's always complicated. And even in countries like Canada and Uruguay, after several years of legal cannabis regulation, including for recreational use, they still have not, you know, abolished or, you know, reduced in some places the black market. Perhaps they've reduced the harms of the black market, that's for sure, including, you know, forms of criminalization and arrests of poor people and things like that. There would be still some kinds of, you know, some types of black market. So in answering your question, I think hemp regulations or any forms of regulation when it comes to these plants would of course help and in so many ways it could help farmers who grow them because then they would no longer be in this sort of legal or administrative limbo right like they would have certain forms of protection you know if the regulations are correct you know they would be able to get assistance from the government and they would be able to perhaps, I don't know, work with one another to create their own business or cooperative and develop livelihoods, you know, that are legal and that are transparent. And of course, with all kinds of regulations, I think the question would be around which actors would, you know, would the government want to benefit the most through these regulations? And so, of course, the short answer would be like, yes, regulations would help. But it's a matter of how the regulations are made and who benefits from those regulations. You do mention that there is always going to be a demand from the black market. And the whole reason why this black market exists in the first place was because we executed laws on a global level immediately. Yes. The reason why people like you are doing your work is because I'm sure you're not just looking at things on a small country perspective because we understand that this problem is a big problem. It's a global problem. It's interlinked with so many countries. So my next question is actually, do you think regulation on a bigger perspective, perhaps by people like WHO, by the International Drug Committee and all these kind of things that work with UN and all that. Do you think regulation around the cannabis industry on that level would be a stepping stone to actually cripple the black market? Or do you think this would have no effect? I really appreciate your point about the global nature of these laws and the legacy and the impact of it, which, of course, is not easily resolved by one country's, one individual country's regulation, right? So that's a very good analysis. Uh, Thank you for that. With regard to your next question, I think it's important to remember once again that the international UN drug control conventions actually don't necessarily consider hemp as you know as a prohibited 
substance when we talk about cannabis in the context of the you know of the global drug control system and that is the UN drug control system we mainly talk about psychoactive cannabis cannabis that normally contains like THC level higher than like 0.2% or or more even so that definition also sometimes is debated and it differs from country to country technically speaking all over the world like when governments go as far as criminalizing industrial hemp they're going way too far you know so actually we shouldn't talk about hemp anymore like it should just be like hemp is okay and everyone can you know can grow it because it's not psychoactive and it's especially if it's for industrial uses like construction and all that then technically it's not supposed to be you know controlled at all it should be regulated yes but not as like a drug talking about you know institutions like the WHO or the Commission on Narcotic Drugs I mean, they are already doing, they've been already, you know, doing some research and is issuing recommendations around the rescheduling of cannabis and also to clarify, you know, that hemp is not under international control. But the challenge is these are simply recommendations, you know, they're not binding policies, you know. So at the end of the day, the implementation of such recommendations or even decisions at these high level meetings, they all come back to what individual countries do and what individual countries decide to, you know, to do at legislative levels, at the national level. So I think it has helped, you know, what they've been doing in this past few years with the critical review and with the issuing of recommendations and with the issuing of their own scientific studies, they really, really help because, you know, we've already seen several countries quoting them, like Argentina, when they regulated medicinal cannabis and legalized personal cultivation, home cultivation last year, they actually quoted the WHO. And also Morocco this year, when they legalized medicinal cannabis, they also quoted the WHO. So I think it's making a difference and it's exciting to see. And I think it just takes a lot of advocacy at the national level to make that happen. We agree with that, Dania, talking about hemp. Um, we're happy, I guess, that you know there's much more efforts on recommendation that hemp it should not be categorized as illegal substance. You know, looking forward to seeing more work on that. But what do you think about hemp regulations? Should it be a feasible alternative to allow benefits for cannabis plant to be utilized? I think you kind of did touch on that. But how do you see hemp regulations work? as a step forward into cannabis R&D and destigmatization, probably regionally and globally. Yeah, exciting. A little bit of a disclaimer, I'm not specialized in hemp because I think it's, you know, it's a whole world on its own given, you know, the various uses of hemp, which is so great. But I could talk a lot about regulations and when it comes to hemp regulations as a tool, yeah, as a bridge to destigmatization and you know further regulation of cannabis i think it could really be a big opportunity and i think hemp regulations might be an an easier perhaps or less controversial start for many countries around the world and of course you know as you mentioned before countries are already doing this even in african countries like ghana they already also move towards that direction and it's true, strategically speaking, hemp advocacy and regulations could be like a, you know, it could pave the way for further 
debates around the benefits of cannabis and also research and development. As you mentioned, you know, relatively speaking, it has it offers perhaps lower risks and lower you know controversy in terms of health and politics and and the potential of it, you know, in terms of industry and also livelihoods are interesting. But at the same time, I would say it should not be a standalone process, you know. I think it could definitely happen alongside other forms of reforms like decriminalization and just like steps towards healthier and more humane cannabis and drug policies in general. I do think that hemp regulations could really help us in that. But I don't think it should be the only one, you know. It could be the main thing that's happening at the government level, for example. But but I would highly encourage like advocates around the world to not limit themselves to hemp. But of course, it is a very interesting subject, especially, you know, when we talk with people who are still under the illusion that cannabis prohibition is, has always been with us. And bringing on the subject of cannabis closer to home here in Asia, and we know that Thailand has kind of led the race legalization and is ahead of other countries here in Asia in terms of R&D and framework for regulation in December for regulation. In December 2020, actually, China reportedly produced about 70 percent of the world's hemp volume in the 11th century. However, they also signed the UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances and subsequently banned the cultivation of all cannabis varieties. However, they relaxed their anti-hemp laws and prompting licensed companies to actually cultivate hemp under strict regulations. Now, based on your experience, which example, you know, now talking about cannabis and hemp in Asia, which example do you think is a better practice for countries in the Asian region? Should we follow the Thailand or China model in the way forward for cannabis? I love being on this podcast because you give me interesting, thought-provoking questions. I don't think prioritizing one should cancel the other. And I think there are so many lessons to learn from both models. And given the very heavy and bloody costs of the war on drugs in Southeast Asia, especially in countries like the Philippines, I would say, you know, perhaps the decriminalization or at least like the maybe the Thai model to some extent because they've managed to reduce their cannabis related arrests for you know quite significantly in the past few years because of the new regulations honestly speaking that might actually be the more urgent path towards reform and also I think Thailand right now they are already taking steps towards you know exploring hemp as well right so I think I would like to come back to my first point that prioritizing one does not mean that we need to cancel the other. And I cannot say much about China, unfortunately, because I haven't really done much research on it. But, you know, but I think there's so much to learn from both models. I refuse to be a reductionist, you know. I don't want to just choose one over the other. But I think perhaps just to play devil's advocate, I think, you know, when it comes to hemp regulations, it could also pave the way for further diversification of uses and products of cannabis, you know, of hemp itself, which then, of course, may lead us to other forms of cannabis varieties. And because low THC cannabis itself can also be a source of medicines, right? So we're not only talking about materials for construction or for clothing here, but we talk about sources of 
food and medicines and other therapeutic products. And this is what's definitely what's very interesting about cannabis. And I think it brings us to our first discussion about decolonization. This is like a very long and exciting road towards decolonization, you know, towards redefining and reimagining our relationship with cannabis, you know, before colonization and before commodification, right? And when we talk about traditional medicine, and I talk about traditional medicine here because I think what's interesting about hemp and cannabis in general is that so many of these products, you know, they're not necessarily like medicines as we see today, you know, when you get sick, you get diagnosed and then you take certain pills or you take some treatment. But when it comes to hemp and cannabis, I see it more of like a, a way of promoting healthy way of living, you know, promoting like healthy ways of relating to nature, to other people and, you know, prevention of certain diseases that are done in a more like continuous way rather than curative, you know. So I think this is also a huge part of process of decolonization is also about acknowledging the nuance of what is hemp or what is cannabis and what they can be used for. In conclusion, these two models that China and Thailand are taking respectively are not mutually exclusive. So perhaps some countries feel like it's less controversial to take the hemp road while others think like it's just more urgent to, you know, to stop this punitive approaches. It all comes back to, you know, each country's uh, needs and circumstances, I think. I'm really happy that you brought up that point of, you know, how it actually depends on each country because for China, yes, they've managed to do it their way and Thailand is looking into this whole new approach and they've kind of seen results, like you said, in a reduction of crime rates. But we understand for Malaysia and Indonesia as well, the way the whole entire cannabis problem is looked at is very different because of the stigmatization of it in the past. It's really sort of just changed the whole entire view on cannabis as a whole, right? So in order for us to undo this, because our whole entire work here is basically undoing the damage of what has been done, right? What would be first step for us? Because we as an organization at Mira, we would like to know how do we actually tackle this problem on a more local perspective? So how should we approach the step for Malaysia and Indonesia considering our current, you know, perception of it and the cultural backgrounds in this region? I think I would like to start off by, you know, telling the story and applauding it as well. You know, in Indonesia, there are three women, three mothers. Perhaps you've heard about this. Three mothers of children who suffer from several, you know, illnesses that are potentially treatable with cannabis. And so these three mothers, they, you know, work together with several advocacy organizations and they submitted a request, an official request for a judicial review of the drug law, of the narcotics law. And they specifically asked the constitutional court to review this, an article in a narcotics law that prohibits the use of cannabis for medicinal uses. And, you know, this is ongoing. And the reason why I brought this up is because first is because, you know, they are highly courageous and they I think, I, you know, we should applaud them for their efforts. And also another reason is because, you know, I think as advocates, we need to always look at what, you know, what the society 
needs, right? And what the people are actually already fighting for, you know? So for example, in Indonesia, these three mothers are not the only, you know, the only parents or the only people who need cannabis for their survival, for the survival of their family members, you know? So, but these three mothers, they, yeah, they came forward to sort of represent the interests of, you know, of, of patients, of people who are suffering because of certain illnesses and they are trying to fight for their constitutional right, for their human right to access health. It's, it's really great to see that people are supporting them, which I think is a very important step in reforming the laws. And I think we already touched upon that a little bit about how, you know, these specific circumstances can lead to different pathways of reform, right? And perhaps in Malaysia, you know, the gateway, perhaps in Malaysia, the bridge, let's not use again with gateway, uh, the bridge to talk about the environmental benefits of hemp, right? And, and I think you've already been doing that, which is amazing. And so I think, you know, there are so many ways in which advocates with different skills, different expertise to, you know, to raise this issue and to sort of join forces when needed, you know. Because when it comes to speaking with policymakers, with decision makers, we need to be able to tailor our messages. We need to be able to have different arguments, different ranges of arguments, not only, you know, in terms of economic terms, not only in terms of industrial potential, but also about, you know, environmental and social and cultural, sometimes even spiritual, you know. I'm actually very glad that you brought up about the movement in Indonesia and how it's centered not around hemp per se. Like for us at Mira, our discussion is a lot around hemp and, you know, that's because a lot of our focus is around, uh, like you said, industrial benefits of it. But we also do have organizations in Malaysia that are working on the same sort of goal as the three mothers that you mentioned. Right? I'm not sure if you've heard about MASA. We've actually had a discussion with them about what is their entire take on this. And we do agree that everybody has their own stake and a lot of different people have their different stakes in it. And the complicated thing now is to sort of put everything together in a big picture, right? And as Mira, we've kind of tried to start to take that first step by you know, doing this podcast and getting different stakeholders to share their opinion. So as an organization, as Mira, how would you advise us to sort of catalyze the movement for cannabis in Malaysia or for hemp per se? Like for us, we want hemp, but for these other organizations as well, I'm sure they also have their importance in cannabis, right? What kind of action could we take to move forward towards forming an actual policy or making a proper change in the regulations in Malaysia? I think you've already been doing that and I'm not Malaysian so I cannot like <laughs> just give I'm going to you know give my opinion of course and based on my own experiences working in you know different contexts but yeah I think in the context of Malaysia I must say you know the movement around cannabis around hemp has sort of been so much more like organized I would say in comparison with Indonesia and I would like to apologize to my colleagues in Indonesia for saying this but I think you know I think you've already been really doing a very interesting 
set of advocacy activities and for the way forward I would advise to first to continue doing so and secondly to convene these different actors as you described to work together perhaps behind closed doors in the beginning and increasingly expanding it in order to sort of work out the different aspects of these interdependent policies and at the same time you know inviting new experts right like environmental experts or health experts and perhaps even religious leaders if you will to sort of have an open dialogue you know to sort of examine the current drug laws the current drug policies and the current practices of law enforcement when it comes to drugs and cannabis and you know and all the related aspects of it and to sort of discuss these the current situation and also the different visions of these different actors and yeah organize different dialogues to sort of compile something new and that could work for Malaysia I think and I know that this is not an easy task and it is a very long and cumbersome process but I do feel that by incorporating these different uh, perspectives and sometimes perhaps even you know having certain compromises I do think that's really a sustainable way to go because perhaps you know in the first two years perhaps you could only get one or two policies related to hemp for example on the table on the policy making table but then perhaps as you're doing that, there are some other advocacy activities going on for patients or for, you know, for people in prisons. And so I think by building these alliances and, you know, having different dialogues on these different topics and also importantly, by acknowledging your differences, you know, acknowledging your disagreements and points of contention, I think that could actually be very enriching for the whole process you know I feel you've actually given us a lot of advice there and you know it, it's about starting to actually work on this alliance in just terms of a policy wise what would actually be the kind of information that the government looks at when they look at policies do they actually look at statistics of the problem based on the country or would they want to also reflect the problem to other countries or to a wider WHO perspective of things? I think when it comes to policy-making processes, I must say it's not only people who carry the government badge are in charge, you know. I think it's very important to acknowledge that, you know, your organization and other organizations that are doing advocacy towards governments also play a very huge role in influencing. Everyone who is not necessarily part of government officially also has an influence in that. Because like, as you mentioned, the WHO, you know, they're not officially part of the government, you know, but they're a credible organization that releases recommendations that influence, at the end of the day, certain decision-making processes at the government level. Yeah, so I think it's important to acknowledge and to make use of that, you know, to approach different actors who have links with governments and to build these links. And I think that's how policymaking and policy advocacy works, right? Is for us to find these loopholes to get access to decision-making processes and to be able to influence those processes. Thank you so much for actually you know, putting it that way. And I think that was one of the reasons we actually had you on our show because you are the expert in this. You have actually spent so many years on you know researching policies and all that around the globe. Thank you so much, Dania. 
it was truly an honour to have you on our podcast. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about the policies that go into the development of cannabis around the globe. And we have really got a wider outlook into the picture of decolonization and what it's all about. We look forward to your future endeavors now with Persepsi and wish you our best support. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on this podcast and I'm very happy that you invited me and I would like to wish you all the best and I hope we see each other soon in the future. We will definitely be talking to each other soon if we are working on this policy. Inshallah. We will need your input and support and you have always you know, been supporting us by giving us you know, your time for this kind of podcast, etc. So thank you to our audience for tuning in to this episode of Go Green by Mira. We would like to invite experts, researchers, entrepreneurs and advocates of the hemp industry to join us on our future podcast sessions of Go Green by Mira to share their work, insights and research to promote the movement of hemp in Malaysia. for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone.